Hello and welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze this week. And uh, it's a good welcome today because we are actually here in Australia. It's well past the time for the expected changes or a Apocalypse, the world's end, as some have predicted. But all is well here on our little island off the coast of Queensland in Australia. Um, although we don't have the coldness of the USA or uh, Europe, we have unusually high humidity and oppressive weather at the moment. I've just been told a little while ago that we're up to 100% humidity. Uh, so we're in for an interesting Christmas time. So here in the land down under, All's calm and definitely all is bright at this hour of the morning. In fact, I I got up this morning to do some thinking and preparing for today's show at about 3 a.m. Fortunately, I'm an early riser and I I usually do quite well with um, these early days. There was a distant sound of Christmas carols. You know, a neighbour had obviously forgotten to turn off their replay button from their stereo the night before. And uh, that was rather delightful too, to just wake up and be reminded uh, of Christmas. Uh, there's been some not so good things happening uh, around this uh, pre-Christmas time, particularly in America. So it's a time really where I think it's very valuable for us to reassess uh, some things that we're doing, reassess life. In fact, yesterday I sent out the desiderata message on my email to all of my clients for the past few years. And I think that uh, message contained in Desiderata is one that is very helpful for us to remember at uh, Christmas time. Important to remember our self-care at Christmas time and New Year break as well. And considering, I think, also what we may do to be helping others uh, during uh, the coming year or years. Sometimes when we uh, have a diagnosis of cancer, it's very easy to to just really focus on, on what we're doing. And it's great to do that, that self-focus. But I have a belief also that uh, that the the art of giving is something that is very very special in uh, particularly in the healing of cancer and other illnesses. So uh, think of some things that you might be able to do. And a bit later in the show, I'm going to uh, look at a few other Christmas tips. But uh, moving along with the topic for today, um, as I said, it's great to be here with you navigating the cancer maze. So if you have cancer or if someone you know has cancer, I think you're going to find not only today's program but the entire series very enlightening and educative. Suggest always uh, that you review the sidebar on the Navigating the Cancer Maze page on Voice America. You can actually listen or download uh, lots and lots of cancer survival information that's based on my 38 years of working with cancer patients. And that's working at quite a a personal and intense level, um, not just working in seminars. I do a lot of one-on-one work with patients and they have, in fact, been my greatest teachers and a lot of the wisdom that you'll hear in this program is actually based on the experience of my patients. So we call our work here at the Grace Gawler Institute for Integrated Cancer Solutions, Cancer Health Intelligence. Um, Because basically we're helping people all around the globe find 
importantly, authentic resources and referrals to clinics that have high-tech and value-add solutions. So if you think that we can help you um, with any of your questions, um, with direction for uh, looking at your cancer survival, please don't hesitate to email us, institute at gracegawler, that's G-A-W-L-E-R, dot com. We are around through the Christmas, New Year, January period because we find that this is a time when most people um, can get into some psychological, emotional issues around uh, things that come up at Christmas time and uh, the certain losses, griefs, memories sometimes. Christmas is not always about the joy and uh, and happiness and indeed the celebration of Christmas itself, but it has very many meanings for uh, people sometimes. So if you do need us, don't hesitate to uh, send us an email. And just also mentioning our German Cancer Treatments website. Uh, you'll find a lot of information on that. As I said, we do referrals around the globe. And one of the key clinics that uh, we recommend is the Halvan Clinic, which is in the Black Forest in Germany. And they have a bit of snow there at the moment, uh, I believe. And uh, you can find us on the web with that website at www German Cancer Treatments, it's all one word, dot com, or if you forget that, you can just email me and I'll forward that to you. So today in the program, uh, what I would like to focus on, for some of you, you may have heard the interview last week uh, with Professor Ray Lowenthal. So I'd like to build on last week's interview, and particularly before we go ahead with uh, the next, say, eight weeks in this series of Navigating the Cancer Maze, where I'm going to be interviewing a range of doctors in a range of of different disciplines of cancer medicine, surgeons, virology, molecular and genetic medicine, um, colorectal surgery, vascular surgery, to name but a few. And I think you'll be able to compile quite a resource of information on navigating the cancer maze in the next few weeks. So today we're going to build, um, as I said, on Professor uh, Ray Lowenthal's interview last week. Now, he's a pioneer oncologist, so uh, I want to explore with you some of the exciting areas today of development in his area, which is conventional medicine, and of course in complementary medicine for cancer patients. So um, I was intending, basically, with today's session... Um, to talk about some of the emails too that people have written in after the show last week and uh, by the next discussion we will be looking at the material that's come through as questions so I'm really going to be expanding on uh, what Professor Lowenthal brought into the conversation. Now one of those things uh, is particularly about uh, biopsies. Now although we didn't speak with Prof Lowenthal last week about his recent scientific publications, I'm prompted to begin today with the issue of biopsies because um, there's been a lot of controversy, um, there's been as I said a lot of questions from listeners to Navigating the Cancer Maze 
And particularly last night on Australian TV, um, there was a feature regarding a very controversial case of cancer that's been in the news actually here for a couple of years now. And um, this story is relevant to our discussions on navigating the cancer maze because it does outline the all-important need for biopsies for definitive diagnosis of cancer. Um, and the importance of collaboration, actually, and continuity of care in any patient's um, walkway of looking at their uh, restoration of health. So just briefly, a little bit about uh, this paper. Uh, Professor Lowenthal and another highly qualified and experienced oncologist here in Australia, uh, Professor Ian Haynes, carefully examined the recorded story of an, Aust an Australian patient, actually, Australia's most famous cancer patient remission, after it became evident that the patient had never had a biopsy for what was presumed to be secondary bone cancer. So with this missing piece of information, they were then able to construct uh, a far more plausible reason for this patient's recovery. So as Professor Lowenthal stated last week, and this is the advantage of many, many years um, of experience in cancer medicine, that he has seen cases mistaken for cancer when other diseases have been involved. It's not something that a lot of people talk about, um, but during the interview last week, he specifically mentioned two cases he'd known of personally uh, from long ago where patients had been treated for cancer, but actually on autopsy, it was found that these patients indeed had tuberculosis. And if we scan the medical literature, we find that the phenomenon of misdiagnosis of cancer is actually well recorded in many, many medical journals. So uh, I was surprised when I started researching this that, that TB can mimic cancer quite successfully and uh, that it is well recorded in journals over many, many years. So, you know, in more modern times, these types of misdiagnosis are less likely to happen. And uh, Professor Lowenthal last week talked about the safety of biopsies. Um, one thing that was thought many, many years ago as a part of folklore, which we discussed with him last week, was that biopsies can let in the air, so to speak, give the, uh, the tumour oxygen and can cause it to flow out into the bloodstream and um, create havoc and possibly even create uh, secondary cancer. So he was very effective, I thought, in dispelling that myth. And in this particular case of um, looking like cancer that um, and TB that either were together or one mistaken for the other, uh, really highlights this need for biopsies. And so modern pathology techniques um, can really identify disease states pretty accurately these days and also modern scans can assist a biopsy as well. And uh, after our uh, break, which we are coming up for now, we are going to come back on navigating the cancer maze and explore this particular case um, of this Australian patient in a little more detail because it is an important test case. It is one that has influenced people worldwide. And uh, if this person did not indeed have cancer, this is pretty important information to be looking at. So we are going for our break now on navigating the cancer maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and we're going to be back really soon on this pre-Christmas edition. Back shortly. 
Hi, I'm Grace Gawler and we're back with uh, Navigating the Cancer Maze and if you've just joined us, we're talking about the importance of um, biopsies carried on from last week's interview with Professor Ray Lowenthal who's a pioneer oncologist in Australia and had a lot of wisdom to share with us. So if you missed that interview, do go back and have a listen to segments uh, two and three of the show in particular last week. Uh, we're talking now about the importance of the biopsies in relation to a very significant case in Australia. And uh, as we said before the break, there's a very important test case here because if a person has recovered from secondary cancer and it's then found out that there is a question mark around the fact of them not having secondary bone cancer um, and the fact that they're very, very, very public and released a lot of information and uh, books and so forth, it can influence the lives of hundreds of thousands and perhaps even millions of cancer patients. And not only in Australia, but we believe this actually has happened around the world. Um, now, if patients were abandoning conventional medicine um, and they're uh, doing this based on the belief that this person had cancer, and I hear this a lot in my practice, oh, well, if this person did it, then I can do it too. And um, that's actually not necessarily so. And especially now, there's been some doubts cast upon the diagnosis of this person. It's a very well publicised case here. It's been in the medical journals, um, it's been in the newspapers and it's been the subject of a lot of blogs and um, conversational um, talkback programs. So for myself, um, I guess I'm more than qualified and able to comment on the story because I was actually an integral part of it. Uh, being the ex-wife of the patient, which may or may not be uh, helpful in looking at uh, the science of it because, of course, some people say, oh, well, you know, an ex-wife wants to take a, um, a not-so-good view at this. But I can assure listeners that this is not the case um, because in this case, there were always question marks. This was never a, a standard case of cancer in um, the three years that uh, I was very, very intensively in, involved with it. Um, I was the 24-7 caregiver, the juice maker, and uh, recently in 2010, I actually wrote an article about setting the record straight with some of the facts that have been misreported um, on this case. And again, it's a very good test case for um, this type of data because a lot of people go on the internet and they get involved in a lot of the entrepreneurial um, sides of cancer and cancer recovery. And we have to learn to look very, very uh, subjectively. Um, we have to look at who's giving the information. Has it been well-researched? Because as a medical um, client of, of ours who's also a doctor says, um, you know, you've got to be so careful. This is your one precious life and you, you're making these decisions um, and you might be making them based on information that's flaky, um, inaccurate or has just been put out there as a um, as a money making exercise. So this case in, in question that I was so personally involved with was made quite famous uh, back in the late seventies by a fellow known as Ainsley Mears. He's since known as the late Ainsley Mears. He was quite elderly back then. But he was a former psychiatrist who was really interested to know more about the impact that meditation could have 
on the growth of cancer. Now, we became involved with Ainsley Mears um, back in those days because my ex-husband had been diagnosed with secondary cancer. Um, we had not been given any other options. We were told that he would probably have three to six months life expectancy. Now, this is uh, really a very relevant point to, to stop and say he never had a biopsy. And uh, it was thought that this was a, a calcified uh, tumour that he had as a recurrence. But however, that lack of the biopsy is a very, very important missing piece of the puzzle. So when he was diagnosed, we uh, embarked upon uh, the intensive meditation and also a very well-known cancer cure diet called the Gerson diet, and uh, it's very popular in, this, in the States. We uh, also applied positive thinking and optimism, not hard for me because I'm a very optimistic person. But at that stage, it was kind of due to tunnel vision thinking that this new lump was really... Um, never thought of have been anything other than the recurrence of bone cancer. And it's quite surprising when we look back with today's knowledge to think that a biopsy was actually not recommended. Um, it was very early suggested that, you know, you could biopsy this. However, it's likely not to be worthwhile. So uh, therein was the start of a story um, that possibly changed a lot of the way that cancer is looked at and certainly has been very influential on people trying intensive meditation uh, and diets and positive thinking for their cancer treatment. Now, that would be okay if people were not abandoning conventional medicine. And uh, therein lies the big problem. So in our particular case, with doing all of those things in the early days, um, Mac's husband's condition actually deteriorated greatly. He had massive weight loss. He had night sweats um, and he had a lot of back pain. And still no one looked for the obvious, which they're obviously the signs of um, tuberculosis. Uh, he went on even to have chemotherapy treatment although it was um, discovered and re-evaluated on x-rays later, that he actually would have had TB at the time that he'd been given the chemotherapy. So uh, again, he's gone on to a stage of treatment where people have presumed that there was a biopsy and uh, that's been a big part of the controversy of this. So uh, he survived um, and uh, he was treated conventionally for tuberculosis in 1978 at the same time he was given his all clear and remission from cancer. So the story was written up as a remission from secondary bone cancer and has been done so since. Um, it's had very different slants on it. Some people have put more emphasis on diet. Some people have put more emphasis on intensive meditation. But somehow the TB and the lack of biopsy has gone under the radar for a very long period of time. Um, 
so, you know, like many cancer recovery stories, this one was very complex. Um, there's quite a lot written about it on the internet. If you go onto uh, my website, my general website, which is www.gracegaulerinstitute.com, um, or if you want to email me at institute at If you are interested in looking through some of these um, papers, I think it provides a very good teaching story for how we need to be more careful um, in just accepting at face value that someone has had a recovery. And look, sometimes this, this just happens. It happens through um, just ignorance. It happens through things falling through gaps in the system. Um, a lot of times it does happen without any malice or intention at all to, uh, to deceive. However, that being said, uh, when someone does get the wrong information and their life is on the line, uh, you know, you really have to be looking at this. So, um, doctors um, Lowenthal, or rather professors Lowenthal and Haynes, wrote a very plausible hypothesis and followed this case through, which makes it look 99.9% indeed that this patient did in fact have um, tuberculosis and uh, not advanced cancer. So you can see from this one example how important biopsy can be and there's going to be a lot more discussion around this, um, I'm sure. So I see many patients in the practice who haven't had a biopsy. Um, based on uh, you know my ex-husband's story, or based just on the myth that if they have a biopsy, it will spread the cancer. And so they set out then to uh, treat the cancer naturally or find a naturopath who will help them. Now, carrying on too from, from last week here, I believe that freedom of choice of treatment, um, it's an argument that's certainly important. But for cancer patients, I think it's so important also that if they're going to treat their cancer naturally or try to, um, that they need to have more information. They need to be sure that their information is accurate. Um, it's very important that they're not misguided. And a lot of people are very surprised to hear that from me. I've been a naturopath and herbalist for a very, very long time. Um, but I really believe that patients aren't informed well enough about the consequences of not following the conventional treatments as well as using the complementary treatments at the same time. A lot of these patients also suffer from lack of follow-on and follow-up and, um, and lack of monitoring. And many of the patients uh, that you can read about on the internet who are talking about curing cancer naturally. If you know a little bit about cancer, you will often find that uh, the cancer that they've been cured of is known to be indolent, which means that it can start and stop. Uh, it can be slow growing. Uh, some cancers behave in ways that we don't really understand why. You know, some people can have a spontaneous remission uh, from a cancer and only to have it reoccur again later. Um, five years, the most I've heard of someone having the same cancer recurring was in fact 33 years after the original diagnosis. So although there's a lot we know, there's a lot we don't know too. Um, so you've got to be really careful about the myths and I think doing your um, research 
is quite important and researching in the right places. I always suggest uh, if you're going to follow any kind of a, um, a regimen and include that even with your conventional therapies, it's very wise to um, at least get three independent ideas about the therapies that you're wanting to follow. Um, we often find that on the internet when you look something up that all the information has come from the same source and um, as a practitioner and as a researching practitioner I'm always aware of at least getting three uh, separate opinions so that might be very helpful for people who are interested uh, in looking on the internet to discover is what uh, you're doing the right thing or do you need to know more information about it? We're also available to answer your questions um, around those kind of issues. If you do find something on the internet and you're still confused after looking at least at three uh, different research avenues, you can contact me and I will be more than happy uh, to go through uh, any of those things with you. Because after working with cancer patients for 38 years and more than 14,000 patients now, uh, you do uh, learn a lot. As I said uh, at the beginning of the show, I've learned so much from my patients. I've learned from patients who said, gee, I wish I had done, you know, X, Y and Z. And I've learned from patients who said, gee, combining these two things was the best thing I could have done. I'm so glad I just didn't take one path or the other. Um, so uh, that's a little bit of wisdom uh, that you can take away with you from the show today. And we are coming up to our next break on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Continuing with this theme, we're going to come back and look at the complexity of cancer in a person's life. And um, looking at cancer cells under the microscope, what do you see? What makes them different? And how does this tie in with what we've been talking about in this session of the show today? So we'll be back with Navigating the Cancer Maze really soon. Don't go away. Maybe make a cup of coffee and come on back. Hi, I'm your host Grace Gawler and we're back for Navigating the Cancer Maze. We've been talking about the importance of biopsies and we're now going to move on in this session to talk about uh, molecular medicine and some of the new therapies that are around. Now, Professor Lowenthal also touched on this last week and uh, for cancer patients who are doing their research and who are wanting to know more about cancer, I think it's really important uh, to learn a little bit that uh, the genetic and molecular medicine that is coming uh, into the forefront now and it's coming as a part of personalised cancer medicine too um, is teaching us that cancer is actually much more complex than we first knew or thought about. Say 30 years ago and even in the last 10 years, there's been tremendous changes in understanding the nature of cancer. And I say to my patients, you know, there's no one size fits all in cancer. So, you know, if you uh, are researching diets and you think, okay, this is the diet for cancer, um, you're going to be pretty disappointed because we now know that the complexity of cancer can be actually seen by looking at cancer cells under the microscope and actually seeing their differences. And we know and recognize too that cancer is a complex series of events in a person's life. Um, there's likely been a walkway. Some people say anything up to 10 years of cellular change um, before you actually get a cancer diagnosed. 
So um, it is a battle, in fact, and a lot of uh, people, particularly in the New Age, don't like that word about the war on cancer or cancer is a battle, but it actually is a battle. Um, you know, there's white cells in there that are supposed to be cleaning up um, cancer cells, and they're in battle all the time. You know, as I'm speaking, there's actually a little war going on in my body and um, that little war is cleaning up cells that have the potential to do me harm and that may have the potential um, to become cancer cells when they can get down and change enough of the material at the DNA. Um, we call this um, at the Institute, we say the cancer has its own cellular intelligence and... Uh, I think when you can understand that and know that cancer will do whatever is necessary to achieve the end of its survival, the strange thing is that it eventually can kill the host and therefore um, kill itself too. And it can be likened to mistletoe growing on a tree. You know, when there's enough mistletoe on the tree, it actually takes the life out of the tree um, and then the tree dies and uh, so does the mistletoe, although it might have spread some seeds across onto, uh, on certainly to the next tree, and that can go on too. But um, mistletoe uh, has also, by the way, been long used uh, in Germany as a treatment for cancer, and I think it's been based on this principle um, of mistletoe on the tree and taking out the life force, and there's quite a lot of good information actually on the internet, if you look into the journals on the research about mistletoe, uh, you can find that for some cancer patients and some breast cancer patients in particular, mistletoe can be a very good adjunct in conventional therapy. It can be tested for to see if it's going to be of use to you. Um, but in talking about the mistletoe, again, let's get back to the, the complexity of um, cancer cells under the microscope. Uh, when uh, you look at different kinds of cells, and I did this with my last group that I took to Germany. Uh, we had a one-day workshop uh, meeting up in Singapore, and uh, I gathered as many different photographs of as many different cancer cells as I could. And patients were just amazed at the difference in the cells. In other words, cancer ain't cancer. Um, you know, you can talk about cancer as, as a whole, but when you actually look at the diversity of the cells, um, the different types of cancers of different shapes, they're different sizes, they have different receptors, um, they have different factors that actually affect their growth. Um, their shapes actually determine, therefore, how they behave. Uh, and this is governed by the number of growth factors. So this is where the new wave of cancer medicine is making progress. By actually understanding and then taining or tuning down the factors that make a tumour grow, you can negatively impact the growth rate of the cancer cells and therefore positively impact um, the life extension and the well-being of the patient. And the more of these uh, growth factors that can be identified, the more a cancer's growth can therefore be controlled. So it makes, um, it actually makes very good sense that this is the, the way to approach cancer. So if you're listening today and you, you're new to this and you haven't had any of this molecular testing done, um, I suppose breast cancer and prostate cancer is an area where 
patients uh, would more often than not have hormone levels measured, uh, hormone receptors measured. And this is uh, basically what we're talking about here, that all the cancer cells have these different receptors on them. And uh, in uh, prostate cancer and breast cancer, this is most known for the hormone receptors. So if you can block the hormone from causing the cancer cell to grow, um, you can therefore have a certain degree of control. Control. But we know that there's many, many receptors and many different control factors um, that are working in cancer cells. And uh, although the clinical application of this molecular medicine and genetics, it certainly is in its early days. And uh, I think Professor Lowenthal said last week um, that cancer is clearly moving from being treated as an acute disease to being treated as a chronic degenerative illness, um, just like we treat diabetes. And this is being enabled by this knowledge of the, the genetics of the molecular medicine and um, what's been found down the microscope and in the histology and pathology. Once again, uh, if you don't have a biopsy, how is that going to be identified? Um, you're not going to be able to uh, know how your cells are behaving and what the growth factors are. So in other words, you're trying to hit a mosquito with a shotgun if you're out there and you're thinking, well, I can do this cancer diet and um, or this natural therapy or these natural therapies and impact these growth factors that are on cancer. Usually once it's, um, it's away and it's doing its thing, um, the lifestyle impact, and we've talked about this in the show before, that uh, lifestyle has about a 20% impact in the pie chart of looking at the healing and health restoration of cancer patients. 20% um, can be attributed to lifestyle changes, which would be considered healthy lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, um, you know, stopping smoking is a very important one. Um, the bigger percentage of the pie chart is the smart conventional and the psycho-oncology. In other words, how you handle uh, your diagnosis of cancer, the sort of strategies that you build and the factors to whether you find life meaning um, as a result of your diagnosis of cancer. Quite often, people can be uh, moved into a great sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in their life. It's like the cancer has been a wake-up call. And um, in the answer to that wake-up call, their life changes, uh, sometimes thinking changes, but it's often or not always, almost always, online uh, with doing these other therapies as well. And that's what we call holistic medicine, uh, which we touched on also last week. Holistic medicine must have smart conventional um, as a part of the whole and not just be natural therapies. Um, <clears throat> so uh, knowing about your cancer cells and how they behave, probably helpful, I think, to uh, explore some of the reputable websites involved here and we have had on the show before uh, Dr Ray Hammond and uh, I did an interview with him. He is RGCC, RGCC USA and the website is the same rgccusa.com. Uh, for anyone who's in the US, if you want to explore this avenue, I suggest you can contact um, Dr Ray Hammond or you can have a look on the internet and have a look for RGCC Greece. 
Now, this is the head laboratory uh, where a lot of this um, new molecular medicine is happening. And the Halvan Clinic, um, who I do some consulting for in Germany, actually uses uh, the RGCC clinic um, or rather laboratories for researching the molecular structure and genetics of people's cancer so that they can have an individualized treatment. And again, this gets back to this, there's no one size fits all in um, in cancer medicine. So one of the things at Halvang, which is one of the new breakthrough um, cancer medicines there, uh, are antibodies. Now, antibodies are being used throughout conventional medicine a lot more these days. When I log on to ASCO, which is the American Society for Clinical Oncology um, sites, or I get their updates, it is amazing how many new antibodies are coming out almost weekly, uh, reaching the market or reaching the uh, clinical trial stage for working with cancer. And this is certainly going to be an area that starts to take over from um, chemotherapy in the main as the years go on. The Halvan Clinic, however, uh, looks for a certain receptor. Um, one of the real, uh, call it a magic bullet, but uh, it's something that can really help turn things around for cancer patients. Um, some patients have said that uh, these particular antibodies that they use have been responsible for them being in remission. Um, and other people have said, well, it was a certainly an important walkway that they use these tri-functional antibodies um, which have been researched and developed in Germany uh, for helping the immune system to recognize cancer cells and um, destroy them in the way that it should. Also, it's been found that if you have this particular marker, um, that the trifunctional antibody, um, particularly in one marker, can actually have a, a vaccination-like effect um, so that your body actually remembers the tumour cells as if you've had a vaccination for um, measles or something like that and uh, that it can provide quite a long-term protection for you. Um, also, that particular antibody, a trifunctional antibody, has been researched in ovarian cancer and for people who have um, what's called ascites, fluid, uh, there's some very, very good news in the working with this particular antibody in um, causing kill of the cancer cells that are in that fluid in, in people's abdomen. So I think there's some really, really exciting things happening. And um, if you want to know more about that, do look up those websites or check back on the interview too with uh, Dr. Ray Hammond and you'll find that on the sidebar of this particular webpage for Voice America. We're going to come back after the break and we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, latest revolutions in complementary medicine in cancer, things that you can use as an adjunct to uh, working with your oncologist and um, happily finding that synergy of uh, helping your health restoration plan. We're going to be back shortly with more of Navigating the Cancer Maze. See you soon. 
Hey, we're back for our last session of the show today with Navigating the Cancer Maze. Um, today we've been talking about the molecular medicine biopsies, um, a little bit about the shape of cancer cells, receptors. And just before the break, if you have just joined us, do listen into the rest of the program because we've been talking about new trifunctional antibodies which have been developed in Germany. Um, there's another person, just before we talk about complementary uh, medicine breakthroughs in the last little while, there is another person that we perhaps should um, look at just briefly, and that's a um, oncology uh, virology uh, scientist called Harold Zerhausen. <clears throat> now he's a professor, and um, he's done some research, uh, probably best known for cancer of the cervix, and he got a a Nobel Prize in physiology medicine in um, back in 2008 because he discovered the role of papillomaviruses. And uh, more and more, as we're understanding the molecular nature and the genetics of cancer, we're also understanding the implication of viruses. And uh, if you're listening today and you haven't had a test uh, for viruses and you have cancer, it's a really, really good idea. Now, there's some cancers that tend to be more related um, to a viral onslaught where a virus has, has come in, infected you, never really left the body, done a takeover bit on some of your cells and has changed some of your DNA. There's a lot of research going on with this at the moment and um, RGCC and the Halvan Clinic are perhaps pioneering the way in not only looking at finding out what viruses are doing um, in cells and how they're changing the DNA, but then being able to formulate some treatments um, which actually cancel out, if you like, uh, the impact of the virus on the body. And uh, Professor Zerhausen's work has been really interesting in that regard. He's also looked at the TTT virus, which is not one that's terribly well known. Um, it's called a torquetinovirus, and there's been evidence that that has certainly been involved uh, in MS, he believes, um, some cancers, some order, other autoimmune diseases. So it's an area where I think patients are, are well advised to look. Again, you can contact RGCC USA and get some more information on this because there is a uh, quite a valid test where you can have this measured. And uh, if you're looking at, you know, looking at cancer long term and your longevity and survival, it may very well be advisable um, to look at these areas and have some attention paid. Um, Dr. Zerhausen also, by the way, has done a lot of uh, research recently on meat and he's been advising that um, not only cancer patients but everybody cooks meat well. He believes that there's some viruses that may be particularly in beef that may not be destroyed completely if the beef isn't um, cooked at a certain temperature, at a high temperature. So that's another little, um, another little tip if you are going to be having meat. Some people cut red meat out completely um, of their diet with cancer and I don't think that's advisable for everybody. Again, there's no one size fits all and if you do need any specific help with that, you can get back to me. Uh, so checking for viruses, we know that the Epstein-Barr virus, the herpes virus, the HPV virus um, is involved. We know that head and neck cancers are on the increase uh, with a very direct link, it seems, to the HPV virus. Um, so uh, very helpful as a part of preventing a recurrence and perhaps a part of your current treatment. 
Now, in moving along to um, complementary medicines, there's perhaps um, three. We've already mentioned mistletoe, but um, three others that have really come to the forefront recently um, are fish oil, and uh, we'll do fish oil and boswellia just briefly. Now, fish oil has been recommended for many, many different uh, applications, whether it's helping with the thinning of blood, um, many people say that it helps with, uh, therefore, attention. It helps with oxygenating the blood. It's got many, many um, advantages. In cancer patients, it seems like anti-inflammatory is also one of the big advantages. And uh, we recommend here at the Institute um, that people do take fish oil and not krill oil. There's a couple of reasons for that. It doesn't seem like that the krill oil has had as much um, research done on it, it's likely to be very different because of the nature of krill. And um, you need a lot of krill in order to get krill oil. And we know that there's certain areas down in the uh, Antarctic in particular where krill are in abundance and uh, there are penguins and uh, in particular some of the uh, very uh, special penguins down there are actually finding that there's not enough krill around. So uh, from an environmental point of view, but maybe also from a health point of view, we should be looking at fish oil. Uh, you need to be sure that it's been mercury tested and it's well, well down within the safe levels. If you're going to be eating fish, oily fish, which is also recommended um, across the world now in many, many cancer diets, um, it's very important that you eat fish that are small, uh, not fish that are large. We know that uh, mercury is very um, high in the shark um, because shark can grow to a, a, a large amount. We know that whale meat, a very controversial area there, um, but whale meat is actually very, very high in mercury uh, because of the size of the animal and the exposure that it's had over a long period of time in the sea. So eating deep sea fish um, and eating fish that are um, that are small, oily fish, um, sardines are a very, very uh, good fish for cancer patients to have. But as well as eating it, this is one of the cases where supplementing with with fish oil, um, salmon oil is another one that's quite acceptable. You need to be sure that uh, your salmon farm, if you're getting it from a salmon farm, are feeding the fish and looking after them appropriate too. But not all farmed salmon is a no-no. Um, the anti-inflammatory effects of fish oil just can be so tremendously helpful. I think it's well worth adding in to any cancer patient's diet. And again, there's not one size fits all. Uh, do ask your health practitioner about this. It does thin the blood and... Um, you know, like adding ginger into the diet. And so if you're going to have surgery, they often suggest that you stop taking fish oil for four or five days before your surgery. And uh, that's an indicator that uh, it actually does work uh, when you see that written on um, a surgeon's letter prior to going to surgery. Um, Boswellia is another one that's come up as a very strong anti-inflammatory. And I've had a number of patients get tremendous um, effects from Boswellia. It's also anti-inflammatory. It's one of the things that can be added in to patients with brain tumours because a lot of brain tumours are very difficult to treat because of access to getting um, the treatments through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, Boswellia is one that can go through the blood-brain barrier and it can be very useful for edema um, that builds up around the brain. A lot of very good journal 
articles also on this. If anyone is interested, they can contact me. But I've had some tremendous results um, in the past few years with people with bowel issues um, and particularly bowel polyps who have been able to use fish oil and boswellia and a glutathione precursor and actually find that their bowel polyps have disappeared. Now, these are some of these people have actually had what's called familial polyposis, which is a precursor to a cancer situation. In the familial means the polyps are inherited in the family. And uh, I have one patient who had more than 100 polyps and she came to me uh, going to have her um, large colon removed in a permanent ileostomy. Now, she's um, well past the year and uh, she's had several uh, colonoscopies and they keep coming back with exclamation marks after um just saying, look, there's, there's no polyps visible. What's going on here? So whatever she's doing and these other patients are doing, I can directly attribute, particularly to the fish oil and boswellia. CoQ10, um, just briefly, um, liposomal CoQ10, very, very able to be absorbed. If you're not using one of those, you're pretty well wasting your money with absorption for CoQ10. And CoQ10 provides energy to the cell. If you'd like to write to me, institute at grayscaller.com, I can provide you with information on any of those complementary medicines. Um, you can take that then to your practitioner and get your dose rate um, organised. Um, in finishing, uh, this is the last show before Christmas. Um, please do take good care over the Christmas break. I wish you a very safe and a happy and a healthy Christmas, a lot of peace and joy. And uh, remember that if you know someone with cancer, if you don't have cancer yourself and you're listening to today's show, um, make contact with someone because it's a time of year when people can go through loneliness and depression, especially if they've lost a loved one who's had cancer too. So if you have a neighbour or someone that you know is in that position, how about just giving them a, a call or calling in or making them feel a welcome in your home perhaps or doing something nice for them this Christmas break. So have a wonderful Christmas and we'll be back with you next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Bye for now. <laughs>